This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, we celebrate the end of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 with a New Year's show looking back at the biggest stories of the last year. My name is Clay Wirestone. I'm a writer and editor here at The Monitor, and I am joined on this, the final day of 2015, December 31st, New Year's Eve, with Jonathan Van Fleet, The Monitor's managing editor. Hello, hey, John. Hey, Clay. I can't think of a better uh, place that I'd rather be. That's right. right and we all have our full glasses of champagne here, don't we? Wink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, reporter Ella Nilsson, you know, who, who just brings the effervescence through the sheer force of your personality. <laughs> Hi, Ella. Hi, Clay. <laughs> so, being that it is the final day of the year, I thought we'd start out today by just looking back at these past 365 days and saying what stories surprised us, interested us, affected us most in this past year. And since it's the Political Monitor podcast, we'll say political stories. Um, You know, clearly the big story of the year politically that all of the think pieces are being written about now is the emergence of Donald Trump. So let's just take that and put that out on the table and say that, you know, Trump's dominance in the GOP field certainly was the story that launched a thousand ships. So, you know, take the phrase from Helen of Troy. But, John, what what else or what connected with that uh, comes to your mind? Well, we... uh... We did our own list of top stories of the year. We've been counting them down this week. And we had uh, at least three political stories in the top ten. It was interesting to note that our our second top story, the number two story of the year, was in fact Trump, the emergence of Trump and and the rewriting of the New Hampshire primary. Ella, you actually wrote that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two stories were the the kind of, the political machine trying to tackle the opioid crisis in New Hampshire. And really, it's the opioid crisis and politicians trying to play catch-up because they're, they're, they're doing a poor job, let's just say that way. Um, if they were doing a better job, there'd be fewer dead bodies in the morgue. Mm-hmm. And the uh, third political story, I think this came in either 9 or 10 on our list, was Maggie Hassan's announcement to run for U.S. Senate. There was, if you recall, there was early on in the days of this podcast, we did a lot of questioning what will she, won't she, who will run in her stead for governor. There was a great number of candidates that were kind of waiting in the wings for her to to make her decision. And and before this, this Ayotte versus Hassan race, took shape, Kelly Ayotte was the most interesting person in New Hampshire politics. And so it, it, it is now a very dynamic race between the two. Um, and that's, that was a big deal. Although what's interesting is that the governor, I feel like on the governor side of things, 
it's still early days mm-hmm. yet to really get a sense of how that field is is going to shape up or who the primary candidates are going to be. Obviously, Colin Van Ostern on the Democratic side, and then there's been a number of other people like um, Mark Connolly. Chris Sununu on the Republican side. And then side. Chris Sununu on yeah. the Republican side. But, you know, it, um, Stephanie Sh- Shaheen has been discussed. She's been discussed, but she's not announced. Correct. In the, in the way that some, at least some of these other, other mm-hmm. guys have. Um, but, you know, you certainly get the impression with the governor's race that that still has a few months to kind of shake out and get the fields fields worked out and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. before you can even really say who the, the, the front runners are. At this point, it's all name recognition yeah. more than anything else. You, you know, in hindsight, it, it seems like there really wasn't much of a much suspense in her decision. It seems obvious that she was going to do that. But there was a time where there was a, a growing number of people that believed that she wasn't going to, mm-hmm. that Ayotte was perceived as unbeatable in New Hampshire, and therefore it was safer for Hassan to sit it out and wait a few more years, get some more um, mileage under her her belt, pad the resume, and then mm. and then take Aot on at a later date if that was going to be her her uh, her race to, to choose. Or there's some congressional seats, right. but it turns out that with the emergence of Hillary Clinton, a lot of bets were made that if Clinton's going to win the presidency and win New Hampshire big, then that tide could carry Hassan into Ayotte's seat. But it also just makes sense then for the Democrats to put as much pressure as they can on the highest profile nominee to run for mm-hmm. that to to run for that seat. But it's high stakes too. It's, oh, it's all or, it could very, be all or nothing. They could stakes. they could lose the governor's seat right. too. But I mean the point is is that if if they if they were going to win against Kelly Ayotte, they had to have a candidate like Maggie Hassan in there. And frankly, unless John Lynch wants to come out of retirement, the Democrats don't really have any other, you know, uh, rabbits to be pulling out of their hats for that. Mm-hmm. I also think it is interesting, you know, you mentioned that that Hillary Clinton sort of having some effect on what happens on the state level, too. I think on the Republican side, it's going to be very interesting to see if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, what that means for incumbents like Ayotte that are much more moderate and much more careful about what they say publicly. Um, There has already been uh, this leaked memo um, to, uh, you know, incumbents in the Senate, Republican um, incumbents in the Senate. And I don't know if it was Congress, too. I sort of... Yeah, we discussed it on the podcast a few weeks ago. That was sort of what to do and how to tailor your message if if Trump is the party nominee. Although I've certainly also seen speculation that if Trump were to become the GOP nominee, which actually I, I do, will go out on a limb and say I do not believe that's going to happen still. Um, but that being said, you know, if he were to become the nominee, that the, the, the establishment GOP would almost by default have to run a third-party candidate, you know, like a Mitt Romney or a, or a Jeb Bush or someone, just so that these candidates like Kelly Ayotte could essentially run on that ticket rather than on the the Trump ticket. Mm -hmm. And there's the understanding that if they run that third-party candidate, he's not going to win, but then probably neither is is Trump. So you're you're sacrificing the presidency, you're going to have Hillary Clinton, but on the other hand, you might be able to save the Senate and, uh, you know, know, preserve the the large margin of GOP-held seats in the House. So I don't know. That all seems very 
very speculative. Right. Speculative right now. Um, I would say that on you know on we're talking about the uh, the Demo- the Republican side a bit on the Democratic side uh, presidentially. I certainly think the um, the surge in support of Bernie Sanders again it's maybe kind of a predictable story in retrospect because there's always a Democratic you know a, a, an insurgent of one sort or another you know when you have a, a narrow race like that or I mean a, a, a relatively small number of candidates there's going to be your establishment pick there's going to be your insurgent. Uh, Certainly, Martin O'Malley thought that he was maybe going to be the, ins- the insurgent at the beginning of the year, but uh, you know, B- Bernie Sanders really caught fire. Absolutely, and I think it is kind of interesting because the last sort of insurgent candidate in the uh, you know 2008 Democratic race went on to ultimately become the president. That was Obama um, mm-hmm. beating out Hillary Clinton. So, um, and and Bernie Sanders' campaign loves to tout, and I think it's it is very you know interesting figure that it's like they're they're well over two million individual donations, um, and which which surpasses what Obama had in uh, in two thousand eight. So that is certainly a measure of enthusiasm for a candidate. I do think that there's still a lot of enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders, but I think it's going to be a tight race in New Hampshire right up until the very end on the Democratic side. Yeah, and I and I think the. You know the challenge for Bernie Sanders is is that his most of his organization and resources are very much front loaded, basically into New Hampshire and Iowa, but very much into New Hampshire. And if if he is not able to win in New Hampshire, his campaign is going to basically be mortally wounded at that point. And even if he does win New Hampshire, that's something that a lot of people are expecting, or at least say is fifty fifty. He's going to have to then show real resiliency and real ability to win some other primaries before people take him seriously on a national level, right. which I, I don't think is really, really happening. Um, so are you saying the election's been engineered before the votes are even cast? Well, that's I'm certainly sure. what a lot of people have suggested about the Democratic uh, okay. National Committee. Just checking. Um, but, you know, let, let's just face it. I mean, Hillary Clinton is an overwhelming favorite in the party. National polls, she dominates handily, and not, and she doesn't just dominate in the national polls. She basically dominates in almost all of the early state polls, except for New Hampshire, um, where she's also close enough that you know she certainly, it's certainly plausible she could campaign her way to a victory here. I also think it's been kind of interesting. Um, I just was reading, uh, actually, Emily Corwin's report from the uh, Portsmouth event that I did not make it to because my car filled up with snow, (laughs) which is a story for later. Um, But it it was kind of interesting. It was talking about, uh, she talked to a couple of people in the audience that that said that they were sort of, um, you know, Sanders supporters, but were kind of on the fence after watching Hillary speak. You know, I think that, that, you know, there's this narrative about Hillary that she's kind of cold and comes off as cold in front of audiences. But I don't really think, I think she's been having a good campaigning cycle. As when I've, whenever I've seen her at events, she's been very warm and um, the audiences have responded well to her. Um, I think that, you know, if, if anyone sort of has this uh, thing about her being cold and emotionless, she hasn't really shown that side of her. Um, and that may have been sort of a you know strategic thing going into this campaign cycle as something to really sort of work on and and um, perfect the image. But I think that that uh, it seems like she's she's resonating with people, even people that are interested in Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, John, I saw you writing some words down here on your legal pad. Yes, so I was going to ask about their significance. 
Well, before we go to those those okay. words, Hillary does have the, the comfort of confidence because of where she stands. She certainly she she hasn't really been she's been the leader, and so there's her. She hasn't really been put on the defensive. Um, that may change when she's after she gets the nomination and is running against the Republicans, and they kind of take it more toward to her directly. But she certainly had this glow of confidence about her. Although that's a relatively new glow. You know, it's relatively new within just the last couple of months. You know, if we were to speak like in the summer or the early fall this year about Hillary Clinton, you know, she looked very weak. Mm -hmm. And this had a lot to do with the revelations about the private email server that she had as Secretary of State. This had a lot to do with kind of her campaign's awkward handling of that story. Because let's face it, it's, it's never the story. It's always how you handle the story or how you talk about the story. Because there's always going to be something in a candidate's past or something that a candidate does that doesn't go well. So the question is then how do you, how do you deal with it? And certainly nothing in her campaign's early handling of the email situation inspired a lot of confidence. It was, it was halting. It was exceptionally defensive kind of obfuscatory and you know in other words all of the kind of the bad things that people would come to associate with a Hillary Clinton campaign or a Clinton campaign at all going back to Bill and really I think it's just a combination of some very good debates the shift in the national conversation to foreign policy which she obviously knows and is very comfortable in discussing and just kind of the the feeling that you know, at least for now, that email story seems to be a little played out. You know, there hasn't a, there hasn't been some sort of new or surprising revelation. So she's just soldiering on. Or it could be that voters have a very short memory span, and, or very short memory and a very short attention span. And this is electioneering to to its finest degree, and the people have been played so that the the Wave of confidence is coming right before our primary. Well, and I'm sure that that is what most campaigns would like to be able to, to do and figure out how to do. Um, so, yes, back to the words on your paper. Oh, the words, crude blow hard. Yes. I, I'm a little insulted. Uh, I meant no offense. <laughs> but, okay. Clay, that's what everyone thinks about I'm you. I'm sure Those they were the words that... Union leader publisher Joe McQuaid used to describe Donald Trump. I would just like to point out that um, I don't think that the I was reading back at the Des Moines Register in Iowa. They called Trump a blowhard way back in the summer. They did not call him crude, but mm -hmm. so it's, it is nothing new. Okay. <laughs> so McQuaid, uh, Monday, the sun rises Monday morning, and on the front page of the Union Leader is uh, an editorial by McQuaid basically saying that um, New Hampshire voters are smarter than falling for Trump and called Trump, likened him to Biff of Back to the Future fame. Of all the people that you pick to compare Trump to, it's Biff. Okay, Biff, so, Biff Tannen, as played by Thomas F. Wilson. Of course. So. By the way, back 
to the Future 2 was on TV the other day. Couldn't, mm. I could not make it. Is an am- five, it is an amazing movie. Oh, it's an amazing movie. Terrible. You it's realize, awesome. I realize it It was set the day was October I, no, 21st. I know. I wrote a, 2015. I wrote a column about it for this very newspaper. I see no flying cars, Clay. You know, it's they have them. They're just, you know kept in lockup. Right. For anyone who's listening right now, this is easily the most tense this room has gotten. <laughs> I'm just ever. saying that Back to <laughs> the, the Future 2 is a great movie. It is a great It's a great movie. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm um, staying out of this. I'm just saying. I also haven't watched Back to the Future 2 in a row. Michael J. Fox plays his own daughter. How can you not appreciate well, that? Well, you know, look. Back to the Future <laughs> 1, you can... You can you can, you can make arguments that that's a good movie. Two, it's sorry, a classic. It's a it's an abject failure. That is a great movie. And three is 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 in some some people's most favorite of all. All right. Old West. <laughs> anyway, back to crude. Clay's Bohart. not going to say whether he's part of that. Some people. <laughs> I actually like three a lot, but anyway, but yes, crude blowhard. All right. So, uh, not to take things lying down, <laughs> Donald Trump immediately uh, fired back. I think it may have been Josh McKelvin from from WMUR who got Trump on the phone uh, first, and uh, Trump went off and uh, retaliated. Had some few a few choice words for Joe McQuaid, called him, I believe, a lowlife, a loser, among many other things. My favorite insult has been that he's stinky. Oh, really? Uh, you know, he he really he really went after the union leader, and the union leader tried to take the high road after the fact. You know, basically saying, "Well, this is what we said he was going to do. He's a he's a bully. He's a blowhard, and this is what he does." I'd just uh, like to point out that this would not be national news if it was any other candidate besides Donald Trump. True, right? Well, just as as in the fact that you know Trump decided that he was going to try to make a make an issue of Bill Clinton's you know sexual past. Mm-hmm. In debating, you know, Hillary Clinton, which I mean, you know, and a lot of people have made some think pieces on even this, but you know, exactly how that hurts Hillary Clinton is difficult, precisely to determine. But just the mere fact that that Trump decides to talk about or something or pursue some strategy, you know, such as, I, and I just wanted this is my little rant here. Trump's Trump was saying just this last week that he was going to start spending two million dollars a week on advertising, something mm-hmm. like that, going into the primary. I would just like to say that as a statement, that is absolutely meaningless, mm-hmm. because what does that two million dollars go for? Go toward, in other words, is that just is that merely like paying for the airtime on on a TV show? Is that actually for producing the spots? Is that for salaries of people that are producing? You know, in, in other words, how far that $2 million a week goes is very difficult to, to know. And he's not going to break it down. My feeling is, is that's basically a figure that's plucked from the air. And I'd be very surprised to see any advertising of any weight from Trump. I mean, I don't see why he would do that. I don't. I, I sort of, uh, yeah, I'm not really anticipating actually really seeing any advertising. I mean, um he just hasn't shown that he's needed it to this point. He because <laughs> the only advertising he needs to do is say something crazy, and then the you know national media just covers it. And I mean, I think the the in the intent his intent in saying that was to make people think, oh, he's doing something very impressive or putting all of this this money into it. But you know, depending on how that money, even if he is spending some sort of money, you know, it could be divided in such a way that 
you know, it, it has very little effect or visible impact on, on things. So, but, you know, so my, I guess my point is you take that, you take, you know, kind of a, a fight with, with Joe McQuaid. I mean, I mean, what does, what does it actually mean? What does it, what does it ultimately portend? Not, not a great deal, probably. It keeps him, uh, keeps him in the news, keeps people talking about him, mm-hmm. people like us. What I found interesting between the exchange is in the, in the same breath as insulting the union leader, he's essentially trying to argue that their endorsement of Chris Christie was meaningless, right? And that newspaper endorsements don't have the power and weight that they once did. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, by going after the union leader for their front page editorial, he heightens that that editorial to a degree where it's self-defeating. And it becomes a huge deal. Far more people, probably millions of people, are now aware of that editorial that wouldn't have been had he not attacked Joe McQuaid. And so if he's trying to say that newspaper editorials and the opinion pages of newspapers don't matter, then he should have said nothing. But because he said something, he proves that editorial pages, opinion pages, and newspaper editorials still matter a heck of a lot. I think, though, it's a much more a much simpler explanation, which is that I think Trump's campaign is driven by a sense of grievance. Oh, I mean, yeah, and absolutely. that is that is that is what resonates with his supporters because they, you know, in general, I think the the feeling is is that many of Trump's supporters are folks who feel like they their politicians are not responsive. The government is not responsive. They've worked hard. They've tried, and you know, they see these benefits going to to government benefits going to people who are not them. You know, and and you can talk about this as racist or or, or nativist or whatever you want to say, but there's still this this deep sense of grievance, and so for Trump. You know, he has to also be able to paint a narrative where he is the one who is being aggrieved, that, that, that people are attacking him. And so you have something like the union leader come along. That is a convenient target because that, that, that encapsulates the idea that the mainstream media doesn't want him to win, that all of these forces are arrayed against, against him. And, you know, and of course it, it helps that that's not an entirely untrue appraisal of... <laughs> Of the situation, really. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, there are very few uh, in the establishment of the party or the media who, you know, are are pulling for Donald Trump to actually be president. Maybe to keep going a little further in the primaries, perhaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's see other other stories from the year. I mean, we've talked about the opioid crisis, the opioid epidemic. Uh, I have to say, I've been very surprised to see how that's that's broken through this year because. Um, you know, certainly there were over 300 who died from those from overdoses, you know, last year in 2014. And I don't feel like that necessarily made huge waves at the time. I mean, you, you, you heard that it I mean, it certainly began to to pick up then. But then this year, I think, was the first that that real sense of full full blown crisis emerged here. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was interesting because I, I certainly think that, um, you know, in New Hampshire, there was probably an interest in trying to make it seem like we had our act together for a while, that we knew what we were doing. And certainly this year was one of the first times I can recall the state government really saying, you know, we're really in trouble. 
I think people outside of the state government uh, in in treatment, you know, the treatment and recovery communities have been saying this for a long time. But I do think you're right that this is sort of the first time that the the state and the the legislature really sort of picked up on it and um, started talking about it a lot more. But does anything get done this next year? What do you think, John? About the opioid crisis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I've let my feelings be known a little bit on this. Until you, until you attack the supply of prescription narcotics in this country, which is the, the wellspring of youth addiction, then you're just chasing your tail by uh, putting Narcan on the streets and trying to bust heroin dealers. Uh, the issue comes from the billionaire drug companies and the doctors that are prescribing it to masses of people that feel that they are entitled a prescription after they walk into the doctor's office. So until we get the culture of pain management under control, addiction is going to addiction and overdose and death and all that just going to be the way it is. So well, you can try all these other legislative solutions. In New Hampshire, I think the most effective thing that is being done is trying to look at the prescribing practices of physicians. There you have an ability to stem the, the flow of, of new addicts, if you will, by, by limiting, by, by keeping drugs out of the hands of drug seekers and people that have probable addiction. Um, likelihood for addiction that you may want to look at other alternatives. More Narcan, getting tough on heroin dealers, that's, I don't think that's really going to address the problem. That's not going to, that's not going to get us out well, of Well, I mean, Narcan is, 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 gonna, is great in the sense of, of saving lives of people who are already addicted. I mean, I think that the issue becomes, you know, kind of beyond that. To me, and I had a lengthy discussion with this, with about this very topic today, actually, with our editorial, uh, with our viewpoints editor, opinion editor Dana Wormald. Um, I feel like there is a real issue, and I, I feel like, to a certain extent, we've been following the same story here for the last five to ten years, maybe even longer, where you have increasing numbers of people that you know at one time you would call the working class or the lower middle class. Um, that are increasingly disenfranchised, dispossessed by our economy. And these are the folks that previously would have only had a high school education, then would go work at a union job or some sort of manufacturing or trade. And in general, there was an implied bargain with these, these folks that they would be able to make a, make a life for themselves and, and their families. And certainly with the advent of the Great Recession, although arguably even earlier than that, with the aughts where there was, you know, ostensibly like a growing economy, but it was very slow. You know, a lot of these people have really been been put on the margins. It's become very difficult to make ends meet, especially if they are middle aged or older, you know, 50s, 60s. And and if you look at a lot of the people that are becoming involved in the opioid crisis, if you look at a lot of people that are you know, really hurting. There's some very sobering numbers about suicides and, and things like that. It's it's folks that are are in this group, and they are, are people that were that believed a version of this country that was not coming true. It is not coming true for them, and and I think 
you know, when you talk about something like opioids or, or painkillers or all of this stuff, you know, painkillers have always been around. It's always been relatively simple if you really wanted to, to go to the doctor and, and cite some symptoms and get some, you know, Percocet or Vicodin. I mean, and then obviously those weren't opioids. Um, but, you know, you could get it. And, and likewise, you know, illegal drugs have always been around. But the issue is, you know, what's creating the demand now? And I think if you look at this broader societal trend, I mean, I think that's, you have to think about that as being one of the big drivers now. Which, but of course that becomes almost impossible to solve because you're, you're talking about society-wide things. This is not a <laughs> the happy, happy, joyous kind of podcast topic. I, I, think, I think there could be an element of truth to that. But I think my opinion is more that these powerful addictive substances are now in every medicine cabinet in America. Because what is what has you're right. There's a lot of people on the margin that can't get ahead. The American dream is dead, and that you know there's more classism than ever before. And so hell, why the hell, why not? Why not take some drugs today? Because you know so that despair can lead to addiction. Of course, but there is the the this a mountain of addictive drugs is being produced in the United States that lives in the medicine cabinets of mm. American households that it has been shown despite class, despite income, anybody, any kid, any young person has access to these drugs and can become addicted in a very short Right. Well, I, but I also think you have to just put these things together. Like, I mean, none, not, none of these things operate independently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have a, a lot of these things go together and it's, 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 a, it's troubling, you know. And, and I think that's one of the things that you also see is that, you know, the, the, you have a task. We had our task force that was put together. Um, the governor recommended to try to come up with a, some fast track legislation. And, you know, it didn't seem particularly impressive. To me what they came up with they met there was talking about it but uh, you know to my mind if the first thing that you pr propose when you have this task force time together is to buy more police cruisers that really suggests there's not <laughs> that there's not a, a serious attempt to grapple with the the problem wait i thought those police cruisers were going to be equipped with narcan darts <laughs> so that when they roll up on the scene of an overdose they could just shoot you up with yeah. narcan from the cruiser no know about oh, that. Oh, I thought that's why they wanted those cruisers. <laughs> mm, that's a good idea. Um, this is an uplifting it, you know, it, podcast. It's, it's getting, this, is, this is almost <laughs> as giddy as the the one after the Paris attack. That, that, well, we didn't, we, we started that one okay. and then the negative. Um, so I guess we should, we'll then just kind of move on to the next, uh, the, this kind of next maybe coda type section, which is what do you think the biggest story of this next year is going to be 2016 what are you going to i wasn't done with 2015 yet you might not have been done okay, with 2015 right, right, right. but Play the podcast with i am watching the timer on our podcast here we are we're running out of time well, do we need to mention the the near return and then fall of bill o'brien almost speaker of the house that's true and then there was the coup First, Gene Chandler, and then Sean Jasper took the speakership away with the help of Democrats. Yes. And now Bill O'Brien has announced that he is leaving the New Hampshire legislature altogether. That was a big story. Let us not forget. That's okay. true. Let's move on to 2016. <laughs>
It's, it's, I'm glad you had the chance to get that in. Sean Jasper thanks you. Um, Sean Jasper and his, uh, and his amazing New Hampshire tie. Uh, there were some media friends and I who corresponded a bit about the, this, this tie he had that seemed to be decorated with, with scenes of the state and loons and various things. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very impressive. So anyway, next year, 2016, coming in only what, like seven hours or so? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Uh, so John, what, what do you think? 2016, what's the, what's the, what's the story? President Trump? Undoubtedly. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. Uh, it's tough to say. Because what's going to happen, you know, is we're going to have the primary in February, and then we're going to have another 10 months of political news yeah. after that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so my predictions aren't always the best. As I'm you not know, even I'm, saying you should I, predict. I, I'm just saying, I, what is the... I'm the one who said Joe gonna... Biden was going to run for president. You know, it's... Many things I think are going to happen do not come true, both professionally and personally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but... Yes. What's... I mean, but what story? What, what are you going to think is... I mean, I... To me, I'll, I'll just go first. I'm going to be really fascinated to see, you know, if we assume that Hillary Clinton has, let's say an 80 to 90% chance of becoming the Democratic nominee, which I think is true. Um, It will be interesting to watch Hillary Clinton in a general election scenario. When she last ran in 2008, you got the impression that her entire campaign had been designed to run in a general election, and she never actually got the chance. She got dragged into this primary fight with uh, Barack Obama. So this time, you know, it's been planned out. I have to assume that the strategy is really in place for her in a general election kind of mode. So to actually see how she finally does as the party's nominee for president, that's going to be interesting. It's also going to be the first time that you truly have a female candidate being, you know, a party's, you know, top of the ticket presidential nominee. What will that be like? You know, what will the dialogue and debate around that be like? I think that will be a fascinating story. I mean, and, and we may even be as tired of it as we are now, maybe, of Trump by the end of 2016. That is true. And it will be interesting to see who her, who she will be facing. At this point, I have absolutely no clue. I feel like usually I have some sort of clue what's going to happen on each side. This time on the Republican side, I have no freaking idea what is going to happen between now and, like, Super Tuesday. <laughs> That's true. Um so, Ella, any, any stories beyond these that we're kind of looking at for this next year? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, I think for me right now, that is sort of the the what I just mentioned, sort of what's going to happen on the Republican side in the next uh, few months. I don't think it's I don't think that's going to be the biggest story of twenty sixteen, but it's just the one that I uh, can't stop thinking about right now. So, um, I will be very curious to see what happens, and I don't think I have to wait much longer to see what happens. So it's going to get really exciting here in the next couple of months. Yeah, and of course we're going to have um, we're going to have the the U.S. House races here in the the state as well. Um, I guess Carol Shea Porter once again getting ready to challenge Frank Genta. Mm-hmm. Who, of course, had major, you know, major ethical issues come up in, in looking back at one of his earlier campaigns. Who Joe McQuaid called a, quote, damned liar early in this year, so... In his, what, six-word editorial? That's right, yeah, yeah. And and yet, 
you know, surprisingly enough, because I think most people in the state suspected that um, Ginter would have to resign. He did not. He stayed put, stayed, you know, batting down the hatches, and he's still there. More evidence of an effective Congress. <laughs> well, we'll we'll see. Um, so, John, any any thoughts on your end for the the next year? Uh, that would be a no. I am. I am still. I'm still firmly rooted in 2015. I see. For these next um, for these next yeah. few hours, and I also need to ask. Yes. You know, since you had not when we spoke last week, you had not seen it, but now you have. What were your thoughts on Star Wars: The Force Awakens? Uh, I I think. Well, no. Spoilers? Should I? Well, no, 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 a, no, no spoilers. It was, a, it was a, it was a, it was well-crafted movie. Um, it was good for the first Star Wars generation, which was our age group. So therefore, it had some. Speak some, for yourself. I'm younger. Yes, some stuff for us <laughs> back for the uh, the original, and also my kids that uh, watched the, the prequels. There was stuff in it for them too, and so they've all seen all the movies, but. It was a good generational bridge to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Okay. And looking, I guess they said sometime this next month, to cross the $1 billion box office mark in the United States. Being oh, I think it already has crossed No, no, that. no. Not, well, oh, that, if, you, if, if you include worldwide. Yeah. yeah. So with that... Happy New Year. Happy New Year Happy to all New of Year. you. It's been a wonderful 2015, and I can't wait to see what this next year brings for all of us john thank you clay you ella Thanks, thank you clay. thanks for listening not just to this podcast, but to all of the other ones this past year. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.